Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am here for day three of the Overland Expo and Mike McMod has been kind enough to let us do the podcast here in his Earth Roamer. It's a rainy day as it can be oftentimes at Overland Expo and I am here with Nick Taylor who's one of the founders of 7P Overland, formerly 7P International, global traveler, longtime friend and we're going to talk about the fundamentals of Overland training and we're also going to learn a little bit about his life and traveling around the world, principally in Northern Africa as well. So thank you, Nick, so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me on this beautiful British summer's day. <laughs> it feels like home for you. It absolutely does. Absolutely <laughs> exactly. Does. You're actually wearing your Arizona winter gear right now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this is as much as you need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shorts and flip-flops, that would do. <laughs> and a special thanks to this week's sponsor, Dometic. When you're heading out, you don't want anything to hold you back. Whether you're planning a week-long adventure or a quick overnight trip to your favorite outdoor spot, we've got you. The Medic's CFX3 powered cooler is designed with any size adventure in mind. The CFX3 allows you to bring more of your favorite food and drink along for the ride, no matter how far you plan to go. Available in multiple sizes, the CFX3 is built for the demands of outdoor use and comes with a handy app that gives you complete control at your fingertips. It's the state-of-the-art designed for rugged-use cooler that you can rely on and enjoy for years to come. You know, it, it always makes me laugh because I think about the number of people from the UK who've literally done first exploring the most remote places of the world. Is it just because the weather is that bad there that they are inspired to leave despite the I, chance of death? Or yeah, what? I think it's a, it's a strong encouragement to go and explore somewhere <laughs> where the weather might be better, you know. And you know, they say they say the British Empire was really just about the search for good food as well. So perhaps that's part of it. Well. <laughs> good food and good weather. <laughs> yeah, right. you, you know it's bad when you have to go to Antarctica <laughs> to get yeah. better weather. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we do have some, we do have some interesting Yeah, I can't complain too. Oh, we've known each other from, I mean, close to two decades now, I think. And I mean, I remember we went to several Land Rover rally events and you were one of the first to have a Defender that I saw in the United States. And of course I was wide-eyed to see a green Defender 90 bouncing around and you've had some others as well. You know, it's really, it's really fun to have you on the podcast just because we've had a lot of shared experiences and I've admired your career and your growth within the industry that has been growing so quickly. So let's talk a little bit about how you even got started at this. Where did you grow up and what were the first insights into that you may travel in the future? Well, you know, we, we kind of touched on it a minute ago with the weather, I think. Yeah. So, um, so I'm what you call a Mackham. So I'm from, from Sunderland. I'm not a Geordie, which would be from Newcastle, right? So I'm from Sunderland in the northeast of England. That's where I, I spent the first part of my life. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's really a great town. It's not a tourist town or anything like that. It's got some fantastic history. And most importantly, I think the people there are great. You know, mm. when I, whenever I don't go there very often anymore, you know, maybe, maybe once a year, mm. obviously not in the past year. I haven't been there for almost two years now, as my wow. mother reminds me every day when I speak with her. <laughs> that I haven't been there for a while, but um, sure. I'll be going back soon. But as soon as you go back, it feels familiar. You know mm-hmm. that everybody chats with each other. Strangers say hello. It's a, it's a very sort of, very sort of friendly place as well. Oh, so. wow. So I do like going back home and I miss the ability just to walk to the local pub, mm. which of course hasn't changed in, in decades, probably sure. like, since my Centuries, father's right? grandfather's <laughs> time, they would probably go to the same pub. Exactly. So, so uh, yeah, I like, I like to go home, but it's, um, 
where I live now in Colorado, you know, Colorado fam- being famous for, you know, 320 days of sunshine a year. I'm pretty sure Sunland has 320 days of, uh, of rain a year. So that, that kind of encouraged me to, um, uh, to, to maybe search for that better weather. But also growing up, you know, I was in, I was in the, in the scouts and the air cadets and, you know, playing the boys old games, you know, the, the, the climbing and, uh, you know, we've got some, you know, small mountains compared to Colorado, but they, there are definitely mountains in character. Um, mm. so a lot of time outdoors and, and, and mountain, mountain biking and that kind of stuff. Stuff, mm. You know, my cousin and I were probably the, some of the first people to have mountain bikes in the UK in maybe 86, 87, <laughs> uh, where, where, you know, there was no regulation. So we sure. could actually use, use, as it says, the Tennis Mountains. We, we rode, rode actually probably largely pushed over Helvellyn in the Lake District. I remember, you know, a bunch of stuff in, up in, up in Weirdale, which is the, the, the River Valley, wow. which, um, you know, comes out in Sunderland. So a lot of that kind of outdoors, spending a lot of time outdoors as a kid. And, uh, but I'm a bit of a geek as well. I know the, those who know me know I'm a bit of a, a bit of a computer guy. So, um, it worked out well in the winter, I suppose playing on uh, you know, ZX Spectrums and things like that. But that also helped me with another part of my career. So um, yeah, that's that, that was it really. So, um, the and then what was your, what was your first big trip out of the UK? The first, well, you know, I'd been traveling, you know, as, as a lot of British people do again, good weather, you know, maybe going with your parents in the seventies for me, going to Spain and stuff like that. But also, you know, there were, there were package holidays going to Eastern Europe, which was, mm. you know, still under the veil of the Iron Curtain at the time. Mm. Um, so I went to places like, like Bulgaria and Yugoslavia and, you know, as a, as, you know, as a kid and exploring, you see these, these different cultures and different places, um, places that just felt so different from, from being back home. Um, and then of course, flying over places where you see these big empty parts of the planet it, which you know, I'm sure we'll talk about because they have such an attraction to me. Um, so seeing that kind of stuff, you know, that, that sort of planted the seed. Um, and then as I, then as I got older, you know, as you, you know, you, you, you go to university, you meet different people from different places. And then, you know, I was lucky enough in my, in my first job, loads of travel, you know, loads of, loads of European travel, loads of, you know, Asia as well. And of course the U S um, but it was, you know, I was spoiled as well. It was the nineties. I was working in investment banking. There was lots of money in that. I'm an, mm. I'm an engineer fundamentally, mm. maybe some people call it a recovering engineer, I think <laughs> right now, you know, that travel, again, you got used to it seeing different places, but, you know, bringing it back to what I did when I was much younger, that sort of the backpacking approach, the hiking, just being out. And, um, you know, and I, and of course had seen the camel trophy videos, mm. which I'm sure you've spent a bit of time talking about, you, did. Um, you know, I, I wasn't part of the camel trophy. I mean, but a lot of, you know, my co-founders, were and that spirit there and watching the way that they went to very remote places, the the, the teamwork involved, mm. the fact that you could take something mechanical um, like a like a like a Land Rover like they did um, to these so far off the beaten track places. So for mm. me, it was an extension of that backpacking and camping that I'd done when I was younger. And I thought, well, having a vehicle, hey, you could just chuck a load of stuff in that, and you don't need to worry too much about it. And you go mm. to all these places much further. So it was about range and all that stuff. And of course, I did it wrong when I started with um, with <laughs> like excuse all me, of us with too much stuff and all that kind of thing. But, um, you know, you, you live and learn, but it was a, but that, that's kind of how I, I got into that. And of course it had to be Land Rovers for me, right? Mm. Because, you know, if you, if you grew up in the UK in the seventies, eighties, uh, actually forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, um, you know, all those formative experiences you have as a kid, you know, and being in the scouts, you know, 12 of us chucked in the back of a, of a, of a, a crew bus, you know, with <laughs> the bench seating along sure. and, and, you know, rattled around in the back of an old Land Rover. Many of us first vehicle we drove apart from maybe a tractor was going to be an old Land Rover. The emotional attachment to Land Rovers is, is there. And it's still, it's still strong. I mean, you talk to the guys, you know, it's, you know, it's still there. It's definitely an emotional, not a logical relationship. Right? <laughs> oh no, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sometimes it's a dysfunctional relationship uh, as I found. It can be, you know, <laughs> I, you know, and you know, the, the 90 that you mentioned, I've had a long time. I've got a, I've got a, a 
a bunch of defenders as well as other Land Rovers because it's a it's a disease clearly. <laughs> um, but having you know having a having a vehicle and a lot of a lot of overlanders do this. A lot of people have those vehicles for a long time. Mm. Um, and you know when you've owned something for 10, 20 years, it's not just a car anymore, right? Yeah. It's it's something. You know that again, that emotional attachment. It's mm. more like a pet, mm. right? That you that you have conversations with, and you and you know you you kind of treat it. You get almost. I'm not superstitious by nature, but there's, there's a few superstitions around yeah. around the trucks, you know. So, um, but yeah, you, you you develop those relationships with the with the vehicle, which is strange and unexpected. And what which one's been your favorite? <laughs> it's a hard they one. Can't hear, they which, can't hear which you. Which one is right your now. favorite? Yeah, they child? can't hear. Yeah. yeah, they can't hear you right now. You know, I mean, it's 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 probably got to be the the, the green the green ninety because I've just just had that what feels like forever. And, mm. you know, it's, it's been a lot of places with me and it's, you know, it's always got me home. You know mm. I mean? Obviously, you know, you, you want a vehicle for 20 odd years and there's going to be, it's going to be mechanical issues, you know? Um, and it was an ex farmer's car from a place called Hexham um, near there. And, I, and for years I was pulling sheep hair out of the back, but <laughs> I think that's, that, that phase has passed. But, um, you know, again, it's just, just, it's just the, the, the stories you can tell together, the photographs you have. Is um, it a so, 200 so TDI or a three, it's now It's now a 300 TDI. Sure. So it's uh, that engines have got about 150,000 miles in it right now. So Amazing. it's really not that high for, for that kind of vehicle. <laughs> no, so. no. But it's um, but it's been a good trip. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a little slow by modern standards. It's a little clattery and clanky by modern standards. But then again, you know, it's EMP proof and it's uh, it is. You, you can push start it, and all you yeah. need is a few volts to the fuel cutter solenoid, and it'll go. And and, and I, I hope it'll outlast me. So uh, somebody after I'm long gone, hopefully, will have that vehicle. That is what I love about the 300 TDI. I, I remember I had crossed the Andes into Argentina. We were coming into Mendoza, and I shut off the 110 that I was driving, and it wouldn't. Re- I mean, it would turn. Over, but it wouldn't restart. And I remembered, I'm like, it was, it was probably Graham that told Graham, you know, Graham Jackson that told me this. He's like, Scott, it only needs a nine volt battery yeah. to run. It's got to open the fuel solenoid. I'm thinking there's only one thing that this car needs to run. That's right. So I got under the hood and I'm looking around. And of course the one blade connector to that fuel solenoid had rattled off yep. in going over the Andes and all the corrugations. I plugged it back on, fired right up again, and it Fantastic. was fine for the rest of the trip. So, you know, there is there's a lot to be said about the simplicity of those vehicles. They may, the blinkers may stop working or there may be little things that happen. Maybe the fan blower cuts out on you or whatever, but they do tend to get you home. And that's been, that's been my experience for sure. And I, and I also wonder, I wonder if there isn't actually an advantage to the adventurer to drive a vehicle that isn't always so reliable. Ah, I mean, <laughs> I, cause I think back on the the most favorite times that I've had traveling and it's usually when something's gone wrong. So I think about like Ray Highland and his trip with his family, you know, across what was the original first overland route in a 1950s uh, Land Rover series truck and like making gaskets out of people's leather hats and stuff. We were having that conversation last night. It's so, it's it's so fantastic. Yeah. It's so fantastic. So I actually wonder if there's if there's really any fundamental advantage to reliability other than if you're doing it for work. Like if you've got to get somewhere or, or you've got your family with you and maybe you're anxious about them um, having a good experience or whatever. I, I don't know that for the adventure, there's actually... A whole lot of advantage to that. I think we've we've what we've noticed, you know. So I remember a time in Morocco where there were a, there were a European group with a bunch of sort of brand new, you know, four by four vehicles. And Morocco, if you're not ready for it, can be a little bit crazy. There are a lot of people there. They're very, mm. you know. But you're the you're the most exciting thing that's happened to them that day, particularly in the rural south. Sure. And and this group came through, and they they looked like they looked terrified. Mm. You know, they wouldn't wind their windows down. They were sitting there in their clean cabs. You know, mm. in their in their their HVAC sealed environment, um, the noise from outside wasn't a part of it. So they weren't they were in southern Morocco, which mm. is awesome. 
but they weren't part of it. They weren't really having an experience. And, um, and, you know, I think actually it was Graham and I who were there on motorcycles. And when you're, when you're on motorcycles, um, particularly for a solo motorcycle rider, and you know, we know there's a lot of them here, you know, they, they were really the that first wave of overlanding in the U S I think people no traveling around the world on motorcycles, you've got to rely on people. You can't do it by yourself. Mm. So you, ha- you have these, these kind of forced engagements with, with people who have so, so different backgrounds, different languages, different cultures, you know, and we need more of that, I think, given the way the world is at the moment. I agree. You know, that, that kind of engagement. But as a, as, a, as a solo motorcyclist, you need a ton of that because, you, know, you, you know, you have that, that hard week, mm. not just day, hard week, and then you drop your bike for the, what feels like the thousandth time and you're like done. And then, you know, it's friendly locals and a, and a, and a very overloaded old truck will come along and they'll help you. Yes, you know, they'll, right. they'll, you'll, you'll get some tea and you'll get some food and they'll pick up your bike and they'll see, ask where you're going, you know? So mm-hmm. that, that kind of thing you were talking about, that adventure quite naturally unrolls, right? It does. If you, if you're in a, you know, if you're in a, um, in a brand new vehicle with the windows up and you're not talking to the locals, you're not experiencing it. You're not, you're not being, you're there, but you're not really there. You're almost like yeah. watching a movie in a way. Yeah. You're, you're more like a spectator yeah. instead of a participant. And on a motorcycle, you can only carry so much food. You can only carry so much fuel. You can only carry so much water. So you are very much dependent upon those small little villages along the way to find those supplies. So you got to ask questions and find out who's got that five gallon jerry can in their hut to, to give you some fuel. And that, to me, those are the best memories that I've had was those, those moments when I needed to rely on others to help me get through a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, so yeah, I wonder that that reliability thing. I think it makes sense though. When I first started overlanding, I was I had so much equipment with me and I was so concerned about my ability to solve any of the problems that I might encounter that I I tried to stack the deck by driving hyper reliable vehicles like an Isuzu Trooper or a Toyota or whatever and bringing all of the things I thought I could ever need with me. And with time, I think the motorcycle has probably been the the best teacher for me because mm-hmm. you simply can't bring that much along with you and you do have to rely on the locals. And owning a KTM taught me about unreliable vehicles. So <laughs> you start to figure it out. You make a plan. Yeah, it's and and the, 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 that little bit of unreliability. Then they also thinking about well, what spares do I need to, when to bring and what tools? And we we see folks, you know, um, new folks in, at the training area here at the Overland Expo. Their minds are blown, but blown by you know we can talk about the mechanical things, talk about fixing things. And I have to remind them, you know, we weren't born with this knowledge. Mm. We we have been where you have been. All of us have been where they have been. Mm. You know, being that new. And in fact, I'm I'm kind of a bit jealous sometimes because I know the journey mm. that they're about to go on and it's a fun journey mm. you know 20 30 years of that it's 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 really exciting and today you know we've got some amazing vehicles around you know we've got everything that you know the, the jeeps are always just great we've got things like the new defender at the opposite end of the scale so sort of mm. technology wise maybe the broncos somewhere in the middle and then you know these are the all these other platforms bigger vehicles mm. I think it's a fantastic time. To it be really doing is. This. And it probably is the internal combustion engine's last gasp anyway. It is. Might be the right metaphor to use, you know, <laughs> but, but you know, as we're going to see more hybrids and electric mm. and, um, you know, some of these vehicles, the thing, the vehicles that I love, are, you know, they, they're probably not going to be politically correct in another three, four, five decades or yeah. maybe even sooner. So, uh, we'll so we be driving hydrogen powered Grenadiers yeah. soon. I, yeah. I'll, I'll take that for yeah, sure. I'll no take, I'll, I'll absolutely take that. And I love the idea of electric vehicles, which are probably going right off topic here, but you know, we're driven motor to each wheel. Yeah. You know, when, when the, when the software is reliable enough and there's no reason it shouldn't be, you know, they're going to be, they're going to be a lot of fun off road. There's a lot less 
complexity actually with an electric vehicle yeah. than there is with an internal combustion. So that time will come. We'll all resist it. They'll be screaming and gnashing of teeth, but eventually they'll figure it out. And hydrogen will, of course, solve the range issue. And then that'll be a, that'll be a very interesting solution. I I think that there is there's a privilege to being a rookie, and and I I think it's unfortunate that people that are new to overlanding they're afraid to say that they don't know something or that they mm-hmm. that they have a question or that they don't have the experience that they may see someone else represent on Instagram probably mm-hmm. not accurately but um I actually think there's a privilege to being a rookie I think about my recent sailing experience and I knew nothing I mean I I knew less than nothing and I left knowing nothing yeah <laughs> because there was a what I found was the further that I got away from land, the deeper the ocean got, the deeper the well of knowledge is that I need to obtain to actually be a true captain of a sailboat. Yeah. Um, and even a month of doing it, I didn't even scratch the surface. Yeah. And, and I felt privileged to be in that spot, to be able to learn and to learn so quickly and so many new things and all these new experiences. So for those that are listening, when you're getting started with overlanding, take privilege in being new to this activity. There's so many amazing things to learn and all these new experiences. And that's why we have people like Nick on the podcast because of what you do with 7P Overland is you give people that are new to this activity the opportunity to learn so much from so you guys have done this combined experience hundreds of years i'm assuming yeah, something like that yeah, yeah that's incredible yeah that's all mostly dunk though as we say <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's that's so that's so incredible so talk to us about your first trips into northern africa yeah so north africa was an obvious place for me to go just head south you know so so it gets go head south weather gets better um going from what feels like one of the wettest places on, it isn't really one of the wettest places on the planet it just feels like it um to somewhere that's the opposite somewhere somewhere dry and somewhere adventurous and exotic somewhere where the culture is different people mm. different all that sort of thing so the obvious thing we call it now morocco's Sahara 101. That that's a great place to start that 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 sort of that sort of adventure, that sort mm-hmm. of journey. Um, it's uh, it's it's a it's a safe place. Mm. Um, you know, I, I know uh, particularly in the US, which doesn't really get too much of, the, of what I would call well balanced international news. Um, you know, people come along with preconceived idea of For sure. what it's like in North Africa or the Middle East or Iran or wherever. In my experience of traveling to those countries, probably a lot like yours is. Um, the reality is very different from what we're, what our opinion is told. You know, the, the opinion that we're told to have about those places is very, yeah. very different. Some of the friends. I mean, the propaganda places, that we see. The on prop- the yeah, I yeah. think I think that's probably the yeah. right word for it. Yeah. Unfortunately, because I have never been on the receiving end of so much friendliness and hospitality mm. as I have in places like Sudan, mm. in Iran, and Libya. Yeah. And you know, I, I know those very countries. You can almost feel the um, the, the I don't even want to know what the right word is, but the apprehension that people automatically feel when they hear those words because they come with so much baggage now. Um, and of course they have, they have issues with mm-hmm. their, with their governments. I mean, we all have issues with our governments and, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm both British and American. So I have the joy of having issues with both of my governments. They, you know, it's just, it's just not the reality on the ground. Um, these places are wonderful. So back to Morocco, um, a great place because yeah, it's a bit crazy. It's a bit chaotic. You know, you're in Africa when you get there, but there's nothing that beats that feeling. So we had cars, it was a small group. We had cars. Um, it was an organized trip actually. Um, the idea for us was to learn the ropes and some part of an organized trip, um, Think we could because we were in our twenties. Think we could learn all about that. Our early twenties. Think we could learn everything because you know when you when you're a young man who's maybe twenty two. Yeah, of course I can learn everything like that, and, and, and I'll know everything in three weeks. Um, and of course, the older you get, the the, the less you you really understand, right? So. 
Um, and that Dunning Kruger effect comes back to bite. Exactly. Us. Yeah. Really. It really does. So it's uh, a long arc. It, it is. You know, the older I get, the obviously the, the less I realize that I know. Mm-hmm. So um, but that's why that's why this stuff's fun. But especially teaching. But I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that too. But it, but but that that I remember that day distinctly because it was beautiful. We'd had a lovely drive down through. You know, we we basically got the ferry from mm-hmm. from the UK to Spain, and then we we this really really lazy s down through Spain and Portugal. You know, um, uh, I guess you know drink of their beer and eating their food and 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 seeing all the touristy things because you know in, in you know one of the things I miss about living in, in Europe is the fact that things change so very quickly mm. you know you can literally be on a on a on a, on a flight uh, less than an hour and Language has changed, money's changed, all that kind of stuff. Have you been to West um, Virginia? <laughs> I, I, I have been to West Virginia. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I sometimes feel like I haven't explored enough in the US. Yeah, I've been here it, 20 years. It does change a lot. It, it, it does, you know, but actually I think a lot of British Europeans think it doesn't, but the US has a lot of culture, mm-hmm. has a lot of history. It's it's just sometimes, it's it's not in your face like the the buildings you see or the For pyramids sure. or all of that stuff, but the US certainly does. And and, and I I still need to explore a bit more. But that that feeling of, of, of being on the, you know, lazy journey through Spain and then the exercise of a group loading onto the ferry. So you're in the docks in Algeciras and, you know, it's crazy. It's, it's starting to get crazy because there's a little bit of Africa there, right? Mm. You know, there's, there's folks who live in Morocco where they've, where they're in their, their very, very small car, a Ford Fiesta and many, and they have stuff piled on the roof to three car heights of, of stuff, you know, the, the, those, those plastic bags and bungees and, and, you know, they're, they're, they're smoking cigarettes that you can't buy in Europe. So they smell differently and all these, so already, already, and you're still in Spain, you're still in Europe, the whole atmosphere has changed. Mm. And, and so, so you remember that, you know, you remember the sights and smells and then you get on there and then when you're on the ferry and it doesn't take long, right. But then you can see the coast of Africa, you know, oh, this is, we're going to Africa now. And what a way to arrive in Africa on a boat. So Mm. you can see it looming in the distance, getting bigger and bigger and the excitement's building. And then you, then you roll off the ferry and you really know you're not in Europe anymore. You know, I mean, the the port Tanger's got a lot better in the last few years. You know, they built a new port actually. So some of that craziness is unfortunate. Yeah. So so Tanger Med is the, is the main port there now. It's a little bit out of the city center. Um, Yeah. Cause the one I went into was just right. You rent right into the city center. You're here. Yeah. That (laughs) was awesome. Welcome, welcome to, uh, welcome to what feels like medieval Morocco, but I loved it. it's changed a little bit. So, but still it's, it's kind of a full on experience. You know, you, you, you know, you're somewhere different and you know, you don't, you know, cause you know, be, being English by default, we don't really believe other languages exist and we just expect <laughs> everybody should speak English. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you don't know the language and they, they, you know, the, 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 the paperwork is in Arabic and French, you know, for your convenience. How do you fill that in? What do you do? So finding a fixer and the people, people coming up to you, you're almost pretending to be officials. And how do you, how do you fill in that paperwork? What do you say? It's an exciting day, sort of a high stress day. Um, but you know, it's different. And then, and then after hours, usually is hours after hours, you know, you've got the documentation sword, got your insurance, changed some money. Um, and now you're off you know, now, now you're off into Morocco, which there's a lot of people live in Morocco, especially the North of Morocco. Mm. And it's, it's a, uh, it's not a desert country in the, in the, in the North at all. You know, it's very green. A lot of the, the, the produce um, sold in, in Europe and the UK is, is grown in Morocco. So you see the farms and all that stuff, but you, you still know you're somewhere else. The, 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 let's put it this way. It's a different driving style that you might be used to. Um, you've certainly got a bit more, be a bit more of a defensive driver there, but that's one of the things about travel. I love the different styles of driving, totally. you know, it's, um, it's the uh, chaos, of it. the, the chaos, you know, the, and, and some guys that'll give you the thumbs up, the young guys, and you know, they've, they've got a vehicle that was a European hand-me-down on its 16th owner. Mm. And of course they want to race, you know, so <laughs> you, you know, 
get into that kind of stuff. And of course, a, a big, heavily loaded, underpowered Land Rover is not the, the ideal race car, but it's just part of that fun. And people want to talk about the vehicles because they're very unusual. But you know, so you you do this interaction all the time, you know, and and you find a place to stay, and 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 it's different, and people fussing over you. And um, but what I really like, you know, what I what I was there for was to get into the desert. So you go south, you go over the mountains twice. Um, you know, stay in the cedar forest, which is an awesome place. Bloody freezing cold usually, but yeah, um, and snow then, in Morocco. A lot snow. of people don't know that. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's big mountains in Morocco, so um, so it is cold in those mountains, you know. And then then during the day, you're getting lower, it's getting hotter, and you can see the landscape changing. You know, it's it's almost like well, it is. It's almost like when you drive down the western slope of Colorado and you stay on I-70, and it changes, it changes. You know, the the mountains turns into turn into mesas. Um, you know, the 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 trees give way to sand and dirt, and mm. and the, then the the geology changes, and it's just like that as you head south in Morocco. You you know. You know you're in a desert, and you know you're you're in the at the the outer reaches of mm. something big. You know the Sahara is the size of the continental US, and and as you as you you know cross that boundary, you know I get really excited now. Still, you know you can tell I'm excited. I'm thinking about oh, soon we'll be able to go back. You know, um, and and but Morocco it'll give you that, and you know that the people in the south are different from the people in the north. Still super friendly, but there's just a lot of people that they're almost aggressively friendly. Mm. Um, and and you know it does wear. To be honest, it does wear on you a little bit sometimes. You know when you you know part of my my idea really to go into the desert was to seek a bit of solitude some you know some uh, you know introspection and mm-hmm. and you know not not quite you know sitting on top of a mountain for six months as a as a hermit but you know just to sit on top of a sand dune uh, there's times that, that doesn't sound like such a bad idea either <laughs> really I, I wonder how many people are around us right now that are, well i'm pretty sure i know some of them are having that idea right yeah. now but uh we, we are in quite a busy place but you know it's just, it's, it's just that being out there and, and being in a different environment is, is so refreshing as mm. well. You know, in my heart as well, I'm a driver. So I like, I, I like it when we get to that more technical terrain, mm. you know, I'm not the world's best off-road driver, you know, um, and I've learned a few things, um, but just to, just to, to be out that with a technical challenge, you know, I like, you know, an underpowered turbo diesel engine with a manual transmission because you're driving that car, you know, you're, you're, you're earning it. That car. You you're are earning every kilometer. Absolutely. And when you, and when at the end of the day, you know, we had a, you know, traveling with grain, we were in Mauritania a couple of years ago and we were driving heavy underpowered, um, uh, manual diesel trucks. And, um, we had a, we had a day, uh, it was, it was mostly sand dunes. It was just an incredible day. No, nobody else out there, quite a bit of winching. We do, we do, we do some special sort of fast winching techniques for when we get stuck in the, stuck in the sand. But we came out of that, we came out that day and we looked at each other and we were smiling and we were exhausted, but we were like, it's one of the best days driving I've ever had, you know, and just, it was just so engaging, you know, mm. and that, that is, that's the big Sahara in Mauritania. You're getting mm. into the, into the rest of North Africa now, but Morocco gives you a flavor of that. You know, you can actually stay in a nice hotel um, and then, and then do some dune driving. Right. And then you could, or you could stay in, in, a, in an auberge, which is a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a traditional hostel, mm. for want of a better word where, um, you know, there'll be rooms, there might be dorm rooms, private rooms, they'll cook for you, family owned. It's not a, you know, it's, it's not a, you know, it's not a, um, a Hilton or a Sheridan. It's a, sure. it's a family owned, very, very simple place, but they're great too, because there's more of that interaction, you know? And yeah, um, that's what I found. Or even the, if you can get into the Toreg camps yeah, a little bit out in the desert. Absolutely. So, so the, the camps in the desert are great as well. Of course they, they kind of, you know, they're, they're very, um, industry, industrious, you know, the, the, the Moroccan folks, they, they understand how a market works. They understand capitalism, right? Mm. Um, just because they live in the desert doesn't mean they're not part of the 21st century. And so, yeah, you, you can pay to stay at one of these camps. They run it professionally. You know, they have chefs, they make great food. Um, you know, of course there's, there's going to be camel rides and, you know, um, and, and, you know, Mohammed's brother has the best carpets in all of them. <laughs> right. If you want to go, a, if you want to go down that route. Too. And his other brother has all of the media rights that have landed out there. That's probably right. <laughs> the number 
number of people who tried to sell me meteorites in Morocco. Now, did, <laughs> now is your your favorite place in Morocco? Is it more air food in the north, or do you prefer Mohammed in the south? What's your? Yeah, I know when you roll into Mohammed, you're going to have a good time because you're in the you're in the desert. You know? mm. So I, I like it. The weather, not so much rain. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's just yeah. There's just something good. good. It, it's changing rapidly, though. Of course, you know, they're, they're all, a lot of the roads that that we drove years ago were 20, 25 years ago were. Um, tracks, very mm. indistinct tracks, easy to get lost as you go through the villages. Now they've, they've, they're, 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 the asphalt's down, they're all tarmac. So, mm. um, it's changing, you know, and, 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 you know, part of me thinks it, it is selfish thought, isn't it? Oh, just leave it the same. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's fun. But of course people live there and, mm. you know, they much, would much rather have a road where it takes them 10 minutes to get groceries than, you know, half a day, um, you know, on, on a horrible road that's damaging the truck that I have, which, which costs me a lot of my money to keep running. Mm. So it's better for them. Of course it is. It's progress. Sure. And, and, um, uh, it just feels, you know, sometimes it's, Selfishly, it would be nice to have the old, but then again, there are still places like that. There are. There are still places. You have to work a little harder to find them. Yeah, that's right. So now tell me about, I mean, Morocco is such a great place for people to go. There's a lot of vehicle hire opportunities there. There are guides in Morocco where you can get access to vehicles. Uh, Outside of Morocco, what is your favorite place in Northern Africa? And, And tell me, maybe tell us some adventures that you've had that stand out in your mind. It's another one of those, what's your favorite child type of questions, <laughs> isn't it? But I, but I guess the countries aren't going to care too much about, about the answer. So, so as you graduate from Morocco um, and you've spent some time in the desert and again, Morocco is Africa. Africa is a place that's impossible to go only once, you know, and it's a huge continent. As I said earlier, you know, the Sahara itself is the size of the continental US. Um, the whole continent is is huge. And yeah. a, lot, a lot of people spend months, if not years, traveling around and seeing everything there is to see. And, and it changes, of course. But sticking with North Africa, um, wow, you've got such a range. You know, um, I, I like Mauritania. Uh, Mauritania is a bit off the beaten path right now. The, they, they haven't decided that you need to travel with a guide or fill in, you know, have um, impossible permits and that kind of stuff to get. So it's still quite easy to do that. And some of the locals there who know some fantastic routes in the, um, perhaps in the, the more to the east as you get towards Mali. Um, there's some phenomenal routes out there as well. We've we've scratched the surface, uh, only merely scratched the surface of doing regularly to that part of the world. You know, so folks are interested in the big the big sand driving and, and, and staying in very remote locations. That that's the place. So Mauritania, I really like. It's relatively easy to get to too. You know, the way that we would run a trip there is um, flying to Ouattara in the summer. There's there's direct flights from Paris, so you could be having a lovely meal the night before you uh, are thrown into the chaos of Ouattara in Mauritania. In many ways, it feels like Morocco did. You know, 20 years ago. Interesting. So, so then you're in Mauritania and you, you know, you're in Mauritania. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but there's, there's some great routes, e- easy, the, the, just the, the geology, there's, um, museums in, you know, air quotes, um, where they're basically somebody's built a wooden shed, but they've got a bunch of artifacts, you know, like ostrich eggs or, mm. um, you know, uh, equipment for, for the big camel trains that would, that would, um, you know, go to Timbuktu back in the day, mm. um, you know, carrying, carrying salt or spices in, in, in one direction or the, or the other, which is a thing that's been going on for thousands of years. Um, and we've been lucky enough to come across some huge camel trains as well, hundreds of animals still doing what they did. And it's a, it's an amazing sight because you, you really feel like you're looking at history mm. at that point. And, and again, one of those unexpected things, it's not like there's a schedule, you know, it's not, it's not like you, you know, paid for a ticket and on at seven o'clock on a Friday, they're going to be there. It's just that one of those things you accidentally stumble across with this kind of travel, which, it, which, you know, sticks with you. So Mauritania is um, phenomenal and still easy and safe to easily get to and safe to go to right now. As you move, um, you know, through, through North Africa, um, Algeria, I haven't spent much time in Algeria, mm. but, but the, but the South of Algeria again in the, in the big desert is, is phenomenal. Yeah. Tazimbra. Some of, some of the, 
the images that I've seen from Tom Shepard come out of there. Oh. I mean, there's something about Algeria yeah. that, yeah. I mean, the only time I spent in Algeria was when I accidentally crossed into Algeria and was lost. So um, that was the full extent of my Algerian experience. But uh, fortunately, I was able to get back across the border without much incident. But yeah, but yeah, that was that was amazing. But Algeria looks incredible. Yeah, Algeria, you know, if you, it's Tom's favorite country. Um, Tom Shepard, of course, you know, the, the, the guy who wrote the really the Overlanders Bible, the Expedition mm-hmm. Drivers Bible, the VDEG, the Vehicle Dependent Expedition Guide. But he also has another book because, again, in his heart, he's a photographer mm-hmm. and his as you know, you know his, his photos are incredible. So the book he wrote, "Quiet for a Tuesday," is a is a is a is a, a lovely coffee table book full of incredible Stunning. imagery from Algeria. And you know that that area in the south, the Tazan roofed, a very remote area, um, uh, difficult, not necessarily difficult, but very time consuming to get mm. to with a vehicle. You know the images in his book. You know just look just look at his book. You'll want to go. Um, incredible. And, and Algeria is one of those countries where you do need a guide, but actually it's quite good because one is they know where the wells are, um, they, which is you know, important. You know, obviously um, they. Know some of, they know some of the routes. If anything happens, um, you know they know how to deal with it. You know, and, and the, the best the best guides. And the, there's a there's a chap. Um, funny enough, Mohammed. Seriously, um, uh, he guide there. He is awesome. He was he's worked on both sides of the law. I think I suspect, mm. but now he works with the government. He works with the tourist agencies. But he knows all the contacts on the around that blurry line of what's legal and what's perhaps not. Um, but that's really, that's the kind of guy you want, you know, somebody, because sometimes I think we forget in the West that that is, that's a, that's a line mm. and you make a very conscious decision to cross that line or not a very conscious decision or not. It's very black and white to us. You know, the law is the law, not so much in other parts of the world. You know, there's a, there's a bit of blurriness around that and, it, and people who understand how both sides of that work because they're both worlds that work in particular ways. And when those guides are your guides, you really have nothing to worry about. You don't have to worry about the authorities who can make your life miserable. You don't have to worry about the, 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 the bandits who can make your life miserable. Mm. You know, none of that stuff is, is anything to, to worry about when you've got someone like that. So sometimes traveling with a guide is, especially one like that, is, is a good idea. Absolutely. It's a good idea. So. Yeah, it doesn't take away from the trip. Oftentimes it, it adds, adds to it, it yes. because they can translate for you. They can introduce you to people. You can get people's stories that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise. Oh, yeah. 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 It's phenomenal. And, you know, in, in, in play, well, right next door to Algeria is, is Libya. Um, very difficult to travel to now, um, you know, with, with the human traffic elements and the um, not quite settled status of the government probably. Mm. Um, it'll come back. It'll take a, I think it'll take a long time to come back, but, but it, but Libya was one of my favorites. It's just, it's just big desert. It's just big desert. And the Libyans are not really a desert people, not, not like the Algerians, you know, mm. the, they, they, they like the coast, you know, the, the Mediterranean coast. So as you get into the, di- the, the deep desert there, um, it's a really different experience. It's like, it's like Moab. But when Moab grows up, it's, it's just, it's when Moab, by the way, is one of my favorite places on the world too, mm. that, that whole area in Utah, but there in the, in that, in that, that border area, you know, up against Algeria, Niger, and um, and Libya. Man, if you like the desert, that's where you've got to find a way of going. Wow. You know, and we know some people who've, who've crossed that border, really, really difficult and potentially a bit risky for a Westerner right now. Mm. Um, but we know quite a quite a, a, a ballsy young lady who's, American lady who's done, done some of that stuff as well. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that it shows you that you can do these kind of things and you mm. can't, you know, if you, you've got to, you've got to know how to do the, the risk assessments, right? You've got to, mm. you've got to understand what you could potentially get into. Not like really most places you don't need to bother too much about that, but, but Libya in particular right now is a place you've got to be a little bit careful you with. You have to pay attention. You have to pay attention. So it's not impossible to go there, um, but maybe my beard would have to be a little bit larger. <laughs> and I mean, I need a few more days out in the sun, you know, to, <laughs> yeah, um, sure. to, to, to pass for that. Um, but it's uh, such an incredible place. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's definitely, you start thinking it's, 
So, so good. So yeah, Libya, then, uh, there, isn't there a lot of antiquity along the coast there as well? Oh yeah, for sure. That you, you, Libya would be, I'd love to run trips there. Um, again, don't think it's going to happen for a long time, but, but you know, there, there's, there's Roman North Africa. Mm. So there's, there's lo- loads of history there. Um, there's the, there's the, the, the sort of prehistoric side, you know, we, we, again, working with good guides, they, they, they could show us things like the rock art, um, from only, only a few thousand years old, as I found out after I'd seen it, um, with giraffes and elephants and hippos in the, in the middle of the Sahara, in the middle of the Sahara from only a few thousand years ago, which is things have changed, things have changed, you know? So, and, uh, I would have liked to have seen that, mm. but there, and there are still things, there are still, you know, there's still elephants in Mali. Mm. If you want to go and find them again, the, the desertification's a, an issue. Um, but you know, we've got, we've got issues, environmental issues everywhere. Right. Mm. So, um, but the change, the change is, is um, you know, you can almost feel it, mm. you almost feel it. But once you're out into the, into the, the big Sahara, it, it's, it feels like it's pretty dead, actually a very fragile and delicate ecosystem. If you look closely, um, but the, that change is astonishing from this lush area it must've mm. been um, to this very dry and, and desolate place that it is now. But on the other hand, sometimes desolate places are magical places too. Yeah. And a special thanks to RedArk for supporting this week's podcast. RedArk's Topro Elite Brake Controller has been torture tested in the Australian Outback. The dash-mounted head unit allows you to switch between proportional for the highway and user-controlled for the trails. You may not trust the terrain that you're on, but you can always trust RedArk's Topro Elite. Tow with confidence by visiting redarkelectronics.com. There's a couple places that I've been interested in going to. Have you been to Djibouti? Nope. No, yeah, no. that one sounds really interesting. Eritrea? No, no, I yeah, know. Those yeah. are both really interesting yeah. to me right we, now. Yeah, we have a, we have a couple of routes that we've not not probably record sketched out. Let's say. I'm yeah. Be quiet, Siri. Um, they, we've, we've had, um, you know, so there are some good routes. That, that, so Somalia, of course, is a um, um, place that people would think is off limits, but Somaliland, which, you know, if Somalia is this inverted L around the Horn of Africa, Somaliland is that horizontal strip at the top. Mm. Um, they, uh, their embassy in London is brilliant. It's like, it's like, it's like being in somebody's terraced house. It's very small, super friendly folks, very excited for people to visit Somaliland. Not a recognized state, you know, by sort of UN standards. Um, but still the right thing to do is to, is to do, do the paperwork and mm. go there. And yeah, I got, I got halfway along that journey and something cropped up and I didn't execute, unfortunately, but, um, that area, Djibouti and Eritrea, not far away as well. Um, you know, they've, they clearly got some disagreements with Ethiopia, mm. uh, but Ethiopia as well. And another place, I, that part of the world, I haven't spent much time, but, yeah, neither um, I. but, I, but I'd certainly, I'd certainly like to, mm. of course, as you, as you just, as you hop a bit further to the East, uh, as you get into the Arabian Peninsula, I've spent quite a bit of time there. And, and how about, uh, Egypt? Have you explored there much? Yeah. Egypt, Egypt's again, different um obviously what do you think of when you when you when you think of egypt all of that stuff which you know very touristy but really um a must see yeah um again i was lucky enough to work with a good guy there we actually when 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 we went to egypt um the the trip that we did is we we flew in the car tube in sudan and uh, and drove to cairo so we did car tube to cairo um in uh, 100 series land cruises for most of it, a yeah, bit, bit of train as well. So sure. Um, I know, I know folks think I'm a bit of a Land Rover guy, but as I said, you know, emotionally touched the, but I've spent, I've done a lot of miles in, 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 in hundred series Land Cruiser. Yeah, the right sure. tool for the job. Yeah. So white ones usually, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, do know, they make any other color than white? I, I, you know, they, they certainly don't sell them in Africa <laughs> if they do. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And you know, as we, as we, um, you know, Egypt, um, Sudan to Egypt, phenomenal, you know, you cross at the time you'd use the, you'd use the, the, the boat, you'd, you'd spend a bit of time in Wadi Halfa. Um, and then you'd get the boat over to, um, uh, over into Egypt, cross the border. Um, 
uh, and then you know uh, trains or whatever to get to to get the car it was just seemed like a fun way to do it and um, it looks like the desert is is like if you were to look at algeria on the western side and and egypt on the other side they're both connected in in many ways but they are they look so different what yeah. was your experience with traveling the deserts it, in egypt it's, you know the travel you know egypt's a north south country mm-hmm. right with because of the nile and you know you, you everything is influenced by the nile in egypt you know in the modern world um and and it's it's strange to see this 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 blue and green thing snaking through the desert mm. you know but all the life is around is around the nile in egypt pretty much that's the country as you go west it's it changes right in the western desert right so but but for me i i, I you know i'm a tourist right i had seeing the pyramids was important um you know going to the going to the natural history museum in cairo mm. um or the, the, you know the, there's a lot there's a lot of there's a lot of history there there's a lot of history there and again experiencing it with with people who is who've clearly descended from from those folks and and they know their history again a very different experience because you you feel like you're a part of it it becomes to life that i was lucky enough actually to there's um there's some smaller pyramids um further south the, the usual the usual mm. suspects you know in gaza so just a bit bit further south and um i was lucky enough to be in a fairly large pyramid by myself which was one of the most eerie experiences i've ever had mm. um you know being in someone's tomb Mm. Um, by yourself. And it, and that, you know, I remember the smell, I remember the temperature because it was blazingly hot outside and, you know, cool in, in here, like a cave. Um, but you know, when you think about what went into that, why was it built and how it was built? And again, you know, to be able to touch those, those cold rocks on the side is by yourself and this experience with just a little flashlight, um, very eerie, but, but on the other hand, you know, connects you with the past, which is, uh, which is amazing actually. So some great experiences in Egypt. Yeah. One of the greatest civilizations in history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact so that they could, that they could, <laughs> that they could muster the, the effort to, uh, of course, discounting the whole alien theory, but <laughs> which we'll do that. I'm, for I'm a today. big fan of Stargate SG-1, so I know really what that's about. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, the amount of effort it would take to construct those. It was. And, and the it would the, take a, that would take a very wealthy, powerful nation to yeah. do that. And, and the, one of the modern theories is that that we, we've thought they were slaves, but the, one of the more modern theories, it's been proposed that they weren't, that they were paid workers to, mm. to, to do that, which logistically, you know, having run some big teams in my career, yeah, that's that's impressive. Mm. And they, they must have had an impressive management structure and, uh, you know, the meetings must have been great. And I bet they went through a lot of PowerPoints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could just say, not another meeting. <laughs> I'm just trying to get this done in the next hundred years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Well, maybe that's why they took so long to build it was all <laughs> yeah. the bloody meetings. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. We know it. Yeah, we know it. Yeah. That just sounds like an incredible area. I've not been to Egypt either and I'm, I'm so excited to go. So yeah, yeah you must do the touristy things because yeah, I want to, they are, I want to, and it's fun, but you can, you can explore and, and you know, mm. you know, going to, um, South into Sudan is, is, is phenomenal too. More, mm. more pyramids in Sudan than Egypt. Mm. Um, and, and, but not very well traveled mm. and Sudan for me, I, I just remember people were trying to feed me all the time. Mm. Um, couldn't stop, you know, you start to have a conversation with folks, you know, in the, in two different languages. Mm. Um, and you know, it's, it's come, come, you know, come and do this. And then all of a sudden these plates of all the food are just brought out and it's like another meal, another meal. And it, it, it feels very rude not to, but they're very curious about you. You know, they, they, Sudan really doesn't see a lot of, of um, Western tourists, mm. very few Americans, you know, so, um, so they, they treat you exceptionally well. They're very excited to, to, to hear about, it. you know, a lot of people aspire to, to, you know, America's values and the lifestyle. Um, so when Americans are there, they're fascinated, mm. you know, uh, you know, if I travel on my British passport, they're just not interested. But when they hear I live in America, then they're interested. So, yeah. so it's, um, it's, it's curious, yeah. but, um, 
but exceptionally. They want to know if you know Kanye, isn't that right? That'll be right, yeah. (laughs) I remember going into South Sudan from the Uganda side and, and yeah, they were very, they were totally fascinated by the fact that we were there. Why would you want to be here? And I, I would tell them because your country is amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah. And, and I'm so excited to be here. And they just felt really proud that we wanted to be there. Yeah. And and that's such an important thing to remember when we travel is first off, we're, we're a guest in their country. So we need to, they may have beliefs and values and, and ethics and, and uh, ways of living that are different than ours, but we need to honor all of those. And there, that's the reason why I, I don't wear shorts when I'm in certain countries, mm-hmm. because it's actually very disrespectful for me to yeah. do that. And it's our responsibility to, to understand their, their local you know, ways right. of living. Yeah. yeah. Not only are we, are we guests in that country, we're ambassadors for our own, mm. you know, so we, we don't want to make a bad impression. Americans are strange creatures in these parts of the world. Not many Americans travel to those. The Americans you meet in these parts of the world are exceptional Americans. Mm. I think that people who've got tons of stories who are well-traveled, um, they have, um, you know, they can hold um, opposing views in their head, right? Mm. Of, of, of the, the, you know, the dichotomy of what they're told versus what they see on the ground. Um, and yeah, Fantastic, but I think I mean it's a cliche, right? Travel broadens the mind. It really, it really does. But that's about the interactions with mm. other people and other cultures. And, and as you as you said, you know, respecting those cultures and the history. Mm. And I think it's something we forget, we forget about even here in the U.S. You know, we people move around a lot, and um, you know, I'm from Colorado, mm. uh, from Colorado, right? And I was like, I think I can say now, and you and you see shift. You know, you see you see the people. Um, not really knowing the history. Um, and you know, I'm sure this happens in other States. I just, I, could, I, I, you know, I just don't know, but in Colorado, you can see some of that, that, that changing. And I think, you know, and I'm an immigrant, right. Um, uh, and, and I'm not going to, I'm going to say aluminum, not aluminum, right. Just, just, just a point that I'm going to drink tea and not coffee, but I'm not, I'm not suggesting for a, for a second that, you know, it should change to adapt to me. I think mm. I should change to adapt to it, mm. respecting its culture and its history. Um, and that's just in Colorado. So yet, yet alone the rest of the world, it's very important that we bear that in mind um, because at the end of the day, we're all human. You know, we're, we're, we have different, we've been brought up differently, right? Because the cultures and the history, um, you know, they, they weigh on us, but we're all human. And fundamentally, you know, I've traveled 70 odd countries in every single one of them. Um, people want the same thing. They want, they want to, they want, their family, you know, their family to do better than they did, mm. right? They they want to they want to keep their family safe. They want to have a laugh with their mates and maybe a, a beer. And even in the dry countries, people people you know, alcohol for some reason um, is is, it is, finds is transcends it finds all, 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 all all cultures. So you know, do it doing doing that, and and you know, and and then they want to hear the stories from other people. You know, the strangers who are becoming their friends, and uh, everybody's the same. We all, all the stuff that divides us to me is artificial. It, it doesn't really exist. It's fabricated because, you know, one, again, one of the oldest tricks in the book is divide and conquer, right? And and you feel it happening, let's say, in other large uh, North American countries. Mm. Perhaps that's going on a bit now. Um, and it's awful. We're all, we're all the same. We actually all want the same things in life. And and why do we feel so divided? And, and, and travel reminds you of that. Mm. Travel reminds you that people with very different backgrounds, very different cultures, they're the same. Yeah. We're all the same. Yeah. Our nature is all the same. I, I feel it's just that we're nurtured. It's the difference between nature and nurture as, as humans, I think our nature is to be kind and to be hospitable and to be curious, but we're oftentimes nurtured by our environment yeah. to be suspicious or to think that they're another or that they're different than us. When I think Mark Twain said it best, I think he, he coined the phrase of that travel is fatal to prejudice. And it, the more that we travel, the more that we realize we are all the same. And like you said, we all want the same thing. And that's why travel is so important. 
Yeah, it re- it really is. You know, when he wrote that, he wrote that book under the under the name of Samuel. Clem, you know, I, of course, like you, I like I like the travel books. You know, The Innocents Abroad. Mm-hmm. It was about the grand tour that Americans would do back in the day. Um, uh, you know, steamboat travel, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, and and writing about how different those those cultures were. And that book, to me, even though it it feels old in a way, it, it feels very current. Um, I haven't read it in a while, admittedly, but yeah. but it's um yeah he's, he 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 travelled, which is why he wrote that and why he saw that and why he said that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's quite quite wise words, I think. Before we move on to our next topic, that is something that I do like to ask, and I know that you are well read, Nick. Yeah. And if you were to pick the top two or three books of any subject, something that's really influenced your life maybe your business or maybe your view on travel or travel itself. What were some of the most influential books for you? It's always a difficult one to answer because being being a bit geeky by nature, you know, Tom's V. Degg is a great book. And I know it's not, I know it's not fiction. I know it's not, but he's an ex-test pilot. Yeah. You know, engineering mindset, um, a disciplined mind, which, as you know, comes across in his writing. Um, and, and, and we know Jonathan's been involved in the later yes. editions of that. And Jonathan kind of thinks the same way. Actually, I think quite helpfully brought some of the North American um, view, viewpoints to that book. Mm-hmm. It was definitely very British um, uh, or maybe even influenced by where, you know, the, the sort of traditional home of overlanding in South Africa and Australia. Uh, of course, I think, you know, it's, it's grown massively here. I think it's overtaken those markets now and, and the innovation coming out of the US overlanding industry is incredible right now. Mm. Um, but the book, yeah, it's just geeky. It's full of tables and numbers and, mm. and calculations and that kind of stuff. And you're thinking about, oh, well, how much water am I going to need and how much fuel do I need and how do I, how do I arrange a fuel cache? And, you know, so when you read a book like that, as I did, I've got one of those ridiculously priced first editions now that, that you will see crop up in eBay for thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, and that was, that was the first thing, you know, and actually, um, in line with that, I have a very beat up copy of Sahara Overland by Chris Scott, another one of my favorite books. Again, it was the, it was the, the promise, you know, before I, I traveled, you know, reading about his journeys through the Sahara and written, you know, I say my, my, my copies usually in the truck when I'm in the Sahara. So it's very beat up and the pages are all brown where I've thumbed through so many times. And, um, and it, and it almost harkens back to this time of, of, um, uh, if travel that is now more difficult than impossible, um, if you're willing to bend the rules a little bit, but any of the, any of those books that, 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 um, really make you think about, yeah. um, Ooh, I, there's, there's an idea. I'm going to, yeah, go the vehicle dependent it. expedition guide for those that are listening, if you can find a copy, um, Jonathan Hansen is now working with Tom Shepard on that book, and they're doing an exceptional job of keeping it up to date with the most current information. And you can find those um, if you just do a quick web search. I know that you can find the current copies. Some of the original hardback ones are almost impossible to find. And, and I remember I bought my first vehicle dependent expedition guide from a Land Rover dealership. It was this dusty copy. I mean, no one had touched it. Mm-hmm in probably years and it was sitting on a shelf and I opened it up and my eyes went wide of like, does this really exist? And, uh, yeah, it's a really proud possession for me. So, yeah. So yeah. Fa- favorite book for maybe, maybe different reasons, you know, yeah. so it's a, it's, it's uh, it's great. I, mean, I, I you know, I, I do read a lot. So having a, a favorite, a favorite story is probably not it. I had the Usborne Guide to Spaceships when I was a kid. That's one of my favorites too. So that's pretty good. <laughs> maybe <laughs> different kind of travel. How about how about books that have maybe changed your perception on either business or the world? Has there any been anything recently that you've read that was pretty profound? You know, the, the you know, in in my other life, um, you know, I still help. Uh, I put it as I help companies. Or at least in IT, get out of their own way, right? So, so my background was in operations and infrastructure. You know, I'm one of the guys who drags cables, and nobody cares about you until something breaks. Then everybody cares about you. So, um, there's a book there that that I think um, anyone 
sort of starting in that space, particularly maybe more junior manager. It's a book called The Phoenix Project. Anyone who's sort of been in that career and reads that book goes, oh yeah, yeah, I agree. Every, you turn the page and you go, yep, yep, that's exactly wow. what happens. And it, it's, a, it's a story about personalities, which you see in that thing. You talk about how it's perceived externally um, and it helps you realize that you're not alone. Mm. <laughs> you know, it helps you realize that this is normal. And, um, you know, again, to, to the, the more junior folks coming up, um, helping manage that both internally and externally and mm. downwards and upwards. It's a really good book. It's a really well-written book. It's kind of funny. It's a short read. Cool. So we recommend it. We, we dole them out to folks who, um, who think they're alone in their suffering and they're really not. You know? Yeah. So that's quite a good, that's a quite good book. Oh, that's a great on business rec- on the business side. Yeah. Great recommendation. Well, let's, Let's uh, shift the conversation a little bit towards 7P Overland. Uh, For those that are listening, it's really important because Matt and I value this so much that we don't have any influence from advertisers. There's There's no advertorial in the podcast or anything else we do in Overland International. So this is not paid time by Nick and his team. We brought 7P Overland into this podcast because we see them as the leader, the thought leaders in training for the Overland space. And we also, Matt and I both believe that training is the most fundamental purchase that we need to make. Um, Before we buy anything for our vehicles, before we buy any gadgets or gear uh, that we go and we get good training because that will help form our decisions going forward. So uh, the reason why we're talking about that today is because we think it is so critical towards safety, successful trips. Um, It's going to save you way more money than you would ever spend on the training because you're going to realize you don't need to buy all these widgets uh, that people are selling because it's the gray matter between our ears that solve most of the problems um, as a driver. So for me, the first couple things I want to talk about is what do you see as being the most fundamental skills that someone needs to adapt quickly or, or early in their process? process of travel. The, f- the first thing you need to do is, is you need to know how to make a good cup of tea. <laughs> and, and I say, I'm, I'm joking. I like that one. But, but really, um, again, what I've noticed about, you know, I've lived more than half my adult life in the States. So, so I feel fairly comfortable in saying Americans want to get it done. Right. So uh, let's get it done. But sometimes getting it done and just getting it done for the sake of getting it done might be the wrong thing. You might, you might end up in more trouble than when you started. So mm. The British way is more to have a little cup of tea, put the kettle on and think about that. And it's not, it doesn't matter if it's a cup of tea, it's just, just taking a moment to stop and to think about the situation. You know, I heard a story just a few weeks ago was, um, some chap had said, you know, um, when you're stuck, you know, stop and, and have a sandwich, you know, if you're really stuck, stop and make camp. And, and that's, that's great because I joke, I jokingly say in pretty much every class, this is, this is, this is the situation. It'll be dark. It'll be raining or snowing. <laughs> you'll be cold. You'll be wet. You'll be hungry. You'll be thirsty. You'll be annoyed with your life. You'll be annoyed at yourself. You'll be annoyed at the vehicle. You'll just be randomly annoyed at the people around you. Um, you're going to be in a bad emotional state. You're not, you're not in the best place to, to pull, you know, 10,000 pounds of vehicle out of the stuck. So stop. You're talking about a Tacoma. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about some of the, some of the vehicles that I see around here that may well be a little bit over GVW. Um, I, I think this is We're the, just kidding. We love Tacomas. We're we absolutely kidding. do. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, this is a, it's, it's, what's the other phrase? It's, it's overlanding, not overloading. Um, so I do love vehicles. that though. Cause Google still changes overlanding to overloading <laughs> autocorrects. I didn't know that. Fantastic. <laughs> it is fantastic. It's an irony above all ironies. <laughs> So, yeah. But so, you know, you've got a big heavy vehicle, you're stuck and, and just, just stop and, and have a think, mm. you know, and, um, what helps that thinking is of course, um, is, is the knowledge, right. Mm. And, and that's, I think what, what's important to us, you know, I think we've got some, we've got some great drivers on the team. We have some world-class drivers on the mm. team. You know, I'm, I'm a rank amateur compared to, to the folks on the team. Um, 
But what I think more importantly, what we have is we have world-class instructors, people who can take the things they've learned as they became world-class drivers, you know, off-road drivers, expeditionary drivers, mobility, whatever you want to call it, take that and put it into other people's heads. Mm. That, that is the, that is the skill that I think we have. Um, and you know, if I, you know, to our own horn a little bit, I think we do that better than anyone else. Um, you know, yeah, the, no the, the style of the instruction and, and we have a team, right? We're not an individual. We have a team that have a broad range of experience. You know, we've touched on some of mine today. The other guys have, have centuries of experience in other areas, whether, whether it's on the logistical side, we have people who are you know, mechanically inclined, people who, who like the new technology going into the, into the vehicles, you know, because it's not taking anything away, it's adding. Um, and we have choice today. You can go old school, new school, but all of these, all of these different things that that's kind of funneled down into, you know, what we'll see here with it, with close to a couple of hundred hours of class uh, classroom hours uh, at events like this um little pieces of that but then we match the instructor with with that and then you know we've got the the more junior folks the newer folks we mix them in so they learn as well because you know we're thinking about how, how does the um what does succession look like mm. you know none of us are getting any younger do we really want to lose the skills of the of the first guys who drove across borneo unaided where, where do they go? Do they, do they perish with them? Mm. You know, do they just become stories or do we pass on those, those hard earned skills mm. um, to our newer instructors mm. and therefore to folks who want to learn that the instructional ability and the style and the patience and the, the humor, mm. all of that stuff is really important to us. And you, and you know, you, Scott, you know, all of us, I think, I do. And, and everyone is down to earth. Everybody is open, honest, and transparent about these things. You know, nobody's, nobody's, well, just jokingly disparaging to amongst ourselves sometimes, <laughs> but nobody's ever disparaging. You know, sure. if, if someone's not learning, guess whose fault that is? It's certainly not theirs. Right. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll change track, you know, we'll, 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 we'll change track. We'll do something different. Mm. Um, we'll find that person's best way of learning. And we have folks, you know, again, another, another joke I have is, you know, we, we do small group training um, over multiple days and we have a very, um, the ratio of instructor is usually one instructor for one person or two people, often couples, couples come and maybe, maybe three or four sort of max and that's kind of the max we get so the joke being is you know the the, the positive thing for for the client is that they get to spend eight to ten to twelve hours in a car with us of course the downside <laughs> is that they get to spend eight to ten twelve hours a day in the car with us but yeah. you know we don't just talk about driving and recovery we talk about you know someone's thinking about buying a, a, a huge you know forty thousand pound truck you know a six by or an eight by um yeah go and speak to dunk he's done a lot of that stuff you know, or somebody who says, well, what about, what about traveling in North Africa? Yeah. Go and speak to Nick. He can tell you a bit about that. So all of those things, you know, and we, and we, and we love those experiences that they're, they're, they're a lot of fun for us because we spend so much time with these small groups. You know, we, we, you know, we eat, drink and drive together. Mm. Um, so we spend a lot of time to the stories over dinner and people finding out. And then, and then of course, between the clients as well, you know, folks who, uh, you know, one chap who was traveling to Nevada, never been before meets the guy from Vegas who knows all of those routes to so getting all those tips and building friendships, you know, and, and we see so much of that. We see people who came along on one of our training trips or one of our travel trips. Um, and they become friends, you know, they stay in touch. We, we, we just did another trip, you know, just a few, just, uh, just last week, actually, that basically all the people who did it last year came on the trip. So we did it slightly differently, but, um, we see, so we see a lot of repeat. We see a lot of, of repeat and that, that to me speaks volumes to the, the type of service that, that we offer folks because they like the personalities, mm. they learn a lot and they have a fun time. Yeah, very much so. And and when we recommend training, there's a few things that we, we always ask people to look at. So the first thing that we look at is do the people that are doing the training have recent and relevant experience? So it's 
oftentimes people will say, I've been training for 30 years. Well, if they do two trainings a year for 30 years, that actually isn't very much experience. Um, so I'd actually, I'd be more interested in the person that just got off of five years traveling around the world and they're training monthly. They're going to have more recent and relevant experience. And that's one of the advantages that you guys have is that you're not only doing four wheel drive training, you're actively traveling around the world. You're actively leading trips around the world. So when you look at a trainer, look at their resume and if their resume all had has the, the 1980s or 1990s in it, uh, then you may want to question how much they've kept their skills up to date. And also, it's just an impossibility for an individual or two people to stay current with all of the most recent technologies and all of these different places around the world. Nick, you've been to 70 countries, but if you look at your whole team, you guys have been to everywhere just about everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's the advantage of having a team of instructors is that an individual who says, I want to go travel the Silk Road, you can say, no problem. We've got this instructor that has experience in that part of the world. Someone else wants to go to Northern Africa. They meet with you. Um, somebody who wants to do Southern Africa, maybe they meet with Graham. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the great strengths is that you guys have recent relevant experience. You guys are actively doing it. You have resumes that go from the 80s all the way up into the 2021. Yeah. And that's really important. You have a wide scope of experience. There's a lot of humility within your team, which means that you guys are still actively learning. What I get concerned is when you have the instructor who says that they've got all of this experience and they've got it all figured out. That means they stopped learning a long time ago. And you need to have a team of people to challenge yourselves to continue to grow and to learn. And 7P is one of the few organizations that have have that. There are definitely other organizations out there that do, uh, but you're one of the few. And that's the reason why the Overland Expo has selected 7P as their training arm is because you guys have this depth of experience. So I think when we ask people to look into training, that's what we tell them to look for is for those kinds of attributes, a humility, a desire to learn, recent relevant experience, and a wide range of experience within a team of people. Uh, And then I also really like the fact that you guys have brought on junior instructors and you've started to diversify your ranks, um, which I think the industry desperately needs. It needs more diversity and it needs more experiences from different viewpoints on life. And I think that that's really important. So I think the next thing that I would like to ask is if someone was, they've scheduled a training with 7P Overland, for example, and they just bought their new vehicle, they bought it maybe a Forerunner or whatever, what would be some of the things that you would recommend them to consider preparing their vehicle for their first training session so that their their vehicle is ready. Well, we get that question a lot, actually. We get, we get I just bought a new Forerunner. Mm. Um, what do I need to do before I can come on your training? And the answer to that is really simple. Nothing. Yeah. Right. So nothing because these, any of these vehicles pick on, you know, throw a cat around here right now. And any of these vehicles we'll see um, is absolutely suitable. You know, mm. bone stock out of, out of, you know, off the factory floor that they, they are absolutely superbly capable. That's the wonderful thing about these modern four by fours, superbly capable. You know what we, of course, the first thing I'm going to say, what should, what should I spend my money? I'm going to say training yes. for yeah, but it's also the right answer. But it's 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 a it's a, it's a great thing because we've seen um, on several occasions. Um, I remember one gentleman in particular. Um, we were doing some fairly basic training down in uh, yeah, our financial training in Arizona. He comes along and he's very excited. Uh, and he'd bought a vehicle and then he found us and then he came along the training and he, he had a short wheelbase, must have been a, a JK, I guess, mm. 37s. Um, and uh, and it was 
packed, you know, packed with stuff. And so three days for us, he comes up sort of sheepishly to, to, the, to, the, to the campfire. After having explained what he wants to do is, is long distance, road biased um, travel. Um, he wanted to, I can't remember if it was a photography, he had some equipment that he wanted to take with him and didn't really have room for it in the short wheelbase. So what someone sheepishly comes up and says, I've bought the wrong vehicle, haven't I? And it's like, well, honestly, yes, we think you have. Um, and, and that's heartbreaking. Mm. That's, if, 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 if we'd spoken to him a couple of months before, we could have helped him um, make all of those decisions about what he needed. You know, he mm. needed a long wheelbase because he wanted to carry a lot of stuff. Um, he, you know, he didn't need 37s because he's spending most of his time on the road. Mm. Big, big, aggressive 37-inch tires, not really the right thing for a lot of interstate travel. So people talk to us. And again, I mentioned people spend a lot of time in the car with us. Um, come along in your stock vehicle. Mm. We'll help you. You'll tell us what you want to do. We'll help you shape that. Mm. You know, do you, will you, will you need a roof rack? You know, we, we pretty much, as you know, we're not fans of roof racks because it, it, there's a temptation there to just put, you know, to, to, you know, the part of the overloading brigade. Mm-hmm. So, but roof racks have a place, right? If you need, if you, a naked you, roof rack is yeah, great. Yeah. If you need it. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's great. It's great to put, to put, firewood uh, yeah. and, and you, you have know, a vehicle you, breakdown you can load up the other vehicles gear absolutely and, yeah you know and, and you reserve capacity platform platforms for roof to again roof tends a lot of weight up there mm. so um from a pure driving perspective mm. something we're not of course i have one um but you know if you were it depends on what we do i'm lucky enough i think really very fortunate to have multiple vehicles right so they mm. set up slightly differently for to to meet you know the the demands of of, of, of the type of trip that i'm going to do so mm. Um, and also it's handy to have a 110 in Europe, right? Mm. So there's, there's things like that. But when folks spend time with us and they say, you know, um, and I see it, you know, the, this group now that we call sort of accidental overlanders, the people who are, um, you know, actually Graham wrote that that Wikipedia entry originally, and it was, you know, kind of travel for the sake of travel. Mm. Um, that was overlanding. Is it not, not being too stressed about a destination, just, you know, le- letting it unfold naturally and, and maybe what's up this left-hand trail, let's go and find out. But now there are people who, you know, you've got mountain bikers and climbers and, um, you know, ham radio guys and fly fishermen, and fly fishermen all of this stuff. They're overlanders, but that's not, they're overlanding to do that other thing. Mm. Um, so we call them accidental overlanders. <laughs> I, I don't, I can't remember, I apologize. I can't remember who coined that phrase. It wasn't me, um, but I think it's a great phrase. It's a great expression to describe, um, you know, what they're doing. So they do want to outfit the vehicles in the same way, but perhaps, you know, a fly fisherman, you know, again, mm. a, a short wheelbase um, thing might not be the, the ideal thing for them. They need a place on the roof. They might need, might need something made of steel so they can use little magnets to keep their go rod handy, mm. right? So there, there might be stuff like that, um, that they need to think about. Mountain bikers, you know, climate, mm. anyone, they've got photographers, they've got um, all different requirements. So yeah, talk to us, you know, and, and that the training does that. Not only will we teach you how the vehicle handles, you'll be familiar with it. Mm. And maybe, maybe it is, oh, you're going to spend more time on the more technical terrain. Then maybe start thinking about the suspension. Maybe start thinking about tires, maybe, mm. maybe, a, you know, a two inch lift. Sure. How, how does that unfold? Yeah. So, um, you know, of course, then we jokingly say the first, the, first, the, the most important modification is going to be, going to be a fridge, right? Because <laughs> the fridge for obvious reasons. Um, and then, you know, then you can get, but, but you know, yeah. the, the, the thing, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes I feel I pick on the, on the vendors a little bit too much. And of course, like everyone else, I like the gear, you know, mm. I like the new toys. I like the sure. the jingly janglies, as Duncan would say, the shiny objects. Um, and it's fun. And, and a lot of people put a lot of time and effort into doing that. I mean, some of the electrical system builds I've seen, wow, you know, and, that, and, that, and, that's, and that's not people who are professional. That's people who've done this because they've taken months of, of time, care and attention to make that the right thing to do. Mm. I would love to do that, but I'm more likely to be you know, driving across the Sahara, given the choice. But hey, that's great because this is a broad church, right? People have many different needs. People who just modify their cars, that, you know, and, and maybe just camp at the weekend. That's part of the sport yeah. for them is just to modify. Uh, absolutely, sure. yeah. And 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 you see, you can see it. You can see it here. All the different vehicles. I love it. Yeah. I love the fact that we are because when you get so broad like that, you get all this great crossover. Mm. 
you know, and again, another Dunganism is every day is a school day. So not only actually do we learn when we're teaching, which is actually teaching is the best way to learn. Complete newbies ask these questions that we may not have considered. So we think about it and come mm. up with a good answer. Um, but it's just looking at the vehicles and the setups, you know, you're learning there as well. And then when you think, oh, that, that thing that this mountain biker did... Um, on his vehicle, that's fantastic because that'll work really well for this other thing over here. Sure. So, you know, the, the crossover we're seeing now and these ideas, and I, and I touched on earlier, you know, the, the traditional, traditional overlanding, which came out of, you know, South Africa and Australia. Mm. And that's why in the early days of overlanding here, which of course you were a part of, you saw that. What was it? It was imports. Yeah. It was imports from those places, largely. I mean, a few European to a lesser extent, but, but now... The U.S. has left them in the dust. Mm, a the, lot the, of new in- innovation, products, and the innovation. Mm. Oh my! The innovation coming out of here right now is incredible. Walking around here, the conversations I've had over the last two days with with vendors here—it's incredible. It's impressive. Really thinking about sometimes it's problems I didn't know I had. I, I didn't have. I had, you know. So but that's good too, right? So again, yeah, teach, sure. th- thinking about it in a different way. But yeah, for sure, the innovations are uh, amazing. So, it uh, is impressive. And uh, when we used to do some training, or if when someone asks us about training, we always recommend you guys. But they say, "Well, what should I do to the vehicle?" And I say, don't modify it at all, but make sure you have light truck tires yeah. and make sure that your spare is the same size as the other. Yeah. It, oftentimes that's not the yeah. case. And then I also tell them to make sure that they have front and rear recovery points. Cause it's interesting. Mm-hmm. You can have a lot of vehicles now that look very capable off-road, but they don't have front recovery points. And that, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't do training without front recovery points, but it's something that you should let your instructor know. Um, and then they may have recommendations of like, yeah, make sure you get front and rear recovery points. But it's, it's interesting. The number of people that I had on oh, the, uh, the last, thing that I would always tell them is make sure that you've done a check of the four wheel drive because we would have people come to training and they would push the button or turn the switch and nothing happens. happens. And then they've lost that whole opportunity for training or it really compromises what they can learn. So yeah, doing a full systems check of the four wheel drive, light truck tire, make sure you've got a set of five that are all the same size and then front and rear recovery points. And then the learning can begin. That's right. You know, and, we, and when people book trading with us, we ask them to send us some photos of their vehicle, Yeah, you know, a little text box description. And it's great. We had this little, I, I assume people put a tiny little bit of detail in that text box, but as it turns out, people will want to write a story about their vehicle, which, which great, great. Cause it, it just reminds you that there's passion behind it. You For know? Sure. So, so we love that as well. But yeah, those sorts of things are, yeah. are, are, the, are the easy ones, but uh, you're right. Yeah. The recovery, I don't know what's happened with recovery points lately. It seems yeah. that, that people, um, yeah, they might look good, but they may not well, really a, be. An interesting example was I just went to the reveal of the 2022 Tundra TRD Pro. Mm-hmm. Rear locker built on a Land Cruiser chassis. Yeah. Like all of the things that we want. And you look at the front end of it and you realize there's no recovery points. So you ask the engineer and they say, well, the aerodynamic requirements, we couldn't have those exposed recovery points anymore. Mm-hmm. So things are changing. So you can buy a TRD Pro, which should be the most capable off-road vehicle that you can get in for that particular model. And it may not have front recovery points. Now, the aftermarket will no doubt address that, sure. but it's it's interesting how things are changing because technology and requirements are changing as well. Yeah, we were chatting about this. You know, we, we were lucky enough to drive the new Broncos the other mm. day, and and um and we see it in the Jeeps and other cars where where before we had to wire auxiliary circuits in ourselves, mm. very difficult. And now the manufacturers have listened to change, and you get a bunch of auxiliary switches. Super cool, fantastic. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, so hopefully, thoughtful. Hopefully, they'll hear the feedback about recovery points and other yeah. things, and and fix that issue as well. Yeah, hopefully. One of the things that we also really liked to ask, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Someone comes up to you and they say, I'm, I'm getting ready to drive down to Ushuaia. I've never really done this before. What advice would you give someone who's ready to head out on their first big overland journey? What would you tell them? The, my, my instinctive 
responses to get going, mm. right? Just, 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 just do it and learn and learn the ropes as you go along. Because as we touched on earlier, you know, that experience, that, that raw, because of your inexperience, the experience will be so much better. Mm. Um, you are, you know, you're climbing a mountain in what, in terms of what you're learning and the knowledge mm. you'll acquire will be fantastic. You'll learn things the hard way, you know, and it's, and there's a lot to be said for that. Mm. You know, it's the same, it's the same journey we've been going on. You know, folks ask us, you know, I think sometimes folks assume we were born with this knowledge and obviously not. Mm. Um, and just to, just to drop yourself in the deep end to go, to go and do it well you know we've got the internet um we've got you know there's forums you can go on i i guess i guess most people listening know that not everything on the internet is necessarily true um so be a bit careful but the the stories you'll hear you know there'll be people with reputation on the internet um you know that that we can follow their their journeys you know, i mean mm. i mean um Tim and Kelsey Huber spring to mind. Great right? example. Yeah. So with, with their videos and their stories. So inspiring. Um, yeah. That, that they, I'm sure they've inspired a, a lot of people to do the same thing, get out there and do it, you know, mm-hmm. because, you know, so the reason, the reason that I, um, that I really started this is, you know, you know, my, my dad got sick. He unfortunately ended, ended up with an industrial disease from work in the shipyards. And it was right on the cusp of, of, of him and my mum retiring and traveling all the plans they had to, were to do. And then they were, they were gone. They were just gone. Mm. And I, again, I'm in my early twenties when this happens and I'm thinking, no way, I'm not waiting to do any of that stuff. I'm going to go and do it. So I did. I, I just jumped in the deep end, didn't knew a little, you know, found a VDEG and a copy of Sahara Overland and thought I'm doing that. Mm. And, and, you know, I think, I think it really, it really did change my life. You know, that overlanding, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I called it that then, I guess probably did, but having the ability to not, and, and, the, and the good fortune of not having to wait mm. um, until you know, retirement, you know, and I, I'm maybe a little way, you know, I'm, I'm getting up there, but not, not, not that close still. And, and doing it when you're younger and, and, and actually realizing that not everything wrote, you know, revolves around this 40 hour week with three weeks vacation. Um, just being brave enough to, to stand up to the man and say, this is what I'm going to do. And they, then they'll say, no, you can't do that. No, no, you don't understand. This is not a question. <laughs> this is now a statement. It's a declaration. Yeah, it is. It's a declaration. I am going to do this. Mm. Um, because if these things become important, you go into a schwire is important mm. to you going and driving the silk road, mm. you know, dri- driving through the outback or, you know, a safari in Southern Africa, all these things I recommend, by the way, you should do them because as it says in the, on the side of my Camel Trophy truck, One Life Live It, which has sometimes been interpreted in the Land Rover community in the UK as One Wife Live It, <laughs> which uh, I think is assumed to do the money pit that they do, but One Life Live It yeah. um, is actually a pretty good philosophy. Yeah. Re- re- every time I see that truck, it reminds me, mm. you know, yeah, you know what? I can, I can, I can stay at home and I can't, there'll always, there'll always be another PowerPoint or spreadsheet or meeting or call to make. But you know what? I don't remember any, I don't remember, I don't remember a meeting that I did last week. Mm. Yeah, but I do remember 20, years ago, you know, when I was in the souk in Morocco buying spices, mm. you know, I remember these things and they are the things that we all should be doing. Our life, in my view, should be, um, should be accreting stories, mm. accreting stories that you can regale as a gin soaked curmudgeon when you're too old to travel, yeah. which is entirely my life's philosophy at the yeah, moment, you know? Yeah. So I just think go, right, yeah. go and do it. Uh, learn on the way. I mean, with a bit of common sense. Mm. Um, yeah, read, read some of those books that'll inspire you. You know, read the, read, read the travel books, you know, read um, Delia Owen's book in, in the Cry of the Kalahari. Read those books, read, yeah. read them and, you, and you'll go, oh my God, I have to do this. Mm. And I'm going to find a way to do this. I'm going to quit my job to do this, you know? Yeah, and, we, and it doesn't cost a lot to travel. No. People can do it in very inexpensive vehicles and they've done it very inexpensively. Again, Tim and Kelsey, great inspirations on how they've traveled in their 80 series Land Cruiser. If you look at Graham and Louisa Bell, um, they, they have told me that their budget is $2,000 a month, which is for many people, that's much less than they spend trying to do a 50, 60 hour work job week 
a work job. And so to, to recalibrate ourselves, if, if travel is the goal and if seeing the world is the goal and learning more about ourselves and about other cultures is the goal, find a way to get out of the trap. Yeah. You know, don't, don't go into debt to get that widgety thing. No. I, I have a good example. Actually, it's, it's a it's a it's a friend, a good friend of mine who I met on my first trip. A chap, chap called Jim, who um, lives in the northwest, and uh, I met him as he he'd taken uh, taken taken a year, him, his wife, and his two kids to travel around the world in a, a Mongolian camel trophy discovery. Mm. Right, so um, from from the uh, Mongolia event, they, they travelled all around the world. They, they, the kids, at young age, got to see North Africa, the Middle mm. East. They spent three months in India, and they 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 worked their way. Um, you know, to the far side of the Pacific from, from the US. So you're on the road living out that discovery. And so he gets back home, interviewed by the, by the, by the local paper and people reached out to him. And bear mm. in mind, this is about 20 years ago. I uh, had dinner with a chap who was very interested in recreating that trip trip mm. and said, um, you know, what is that trip? What does that trip cost? You know, like 30, $40,000, which, you know, it's a lot of money, but um, the guy's you know, kind of shaking his head and said, wow, that's a, that's a lot of money to do on a trip like that. And Jim points at the $80,000 BMW the guy drove up in and reminded him gently that perhaps you need to think about your priorities, you know? So, I mean, yeah, an $80,000, especially back then is a very, very nice car. And I'm sure every time you get in that, it feels great and you feel co- comfortable with your purchase and you enjoy every, every moment of ownership. Yeah. But you know what, you know what, a year around the world with your kids when they're growing up, mm. experience the history and the cultures and everything the planet has to offer. It's priceless. What do you think that's worth? Yeah. yeah. You know, is that worth getting a little bit of a smaller car? I mean, mm. you know, in a 50 grand car is still a pretty good car. Yeah. Again, at 2000 prices. Or even a $10,000 Honda to get you to work and back so no you kidding. can save money to go see the world. Yeah. yeah. No kidding. We, and we see a lot of people like that, people working, you know, and they, and they are, they are, they, the travel bugs got them. And, I'm, and I, and I can't help but think as well, that maybe um, with last year in 2020 and COVID, it's changed the American mindset a little bit to mm. realizing that, you know, that, that working and then looking forward to the retirement, you know, these, these kind of blocks of life that almost feel they're dictated to you. It feels like you're not writing a book. You just read the instruction manual. Maybe that's going to change a little bit. I hope it does because I hope it does because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. I mean, I think about even my, my parents, my mom diagnosed with Alzheimer's as my parents are retiring and you don't know. You have yeah. no idea what tomorrow holds. And I think about that. And I think about what am I, what am I setting as a goal for five years from now? And how come I can't do it in the next six months? I ask myself that now, every time that I come up with a new ideas, why am I waiting? If it's that interesting to me, or if it's that important to me, why am I waiting? Why am I not making it a priority today? I thank you for reminding us of that, Nick. And I, and I really appreciate you being on the podcast and sharing your adventures in Northern Africa, <laughs> the good that you and 7P are doing for the community, for the Overland Expo. I'd highly recommend that people that are listening attend an Overland Expo, sign up for the experience package, check a bunch of boxes on training that sounds interesting to you and come and learn about the skills of travel. So that way, like the Maasai warriors say, a a person carries their experience on their back. The more knowledge and the more skill and the more experience that we have, which has nothing to do with stuff, the less stuff that we need to buy, which means the more money we have for fuel, the more money we have to go see the world. And that's really the goal. And I appreciate your time today, Nick. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience? No, I, I like where you're going with that. Knowledge is light, right? It is. It's, um, it, it's, it's easy to take with you. And, yeah. um, and, and I think it's important as well that, that you know, some of this stuff is perishable skills. Mm. Like, for example, I used to say, you know, I can't splice to save my life. I probably can splice just well enough to save my life. But, you know, the tying the knots, the splicing mm. stuff, which is enormously popular classes. If you don't do that, you forget how to do it. For sure. You know, if you don't practice left foot braking, you kind of forget how to do it. So mm. reminding yourselves that these things are, are, are perishable skills, yeah. go out and do it. 
you know, go, go out, go out somewhere at the weekend and, and get into four low and, and have a, have a little adventure. It's good for you. Cause you remember it's good for the vehicle, gets all those fluids moving yeah. around the, the mechanicals that need to be moving around. Um, and just get out there and enjoy it and make the most of, make the most of the time you have, because yeah, as I said, you know, one life you should live it. Yeah. Thank you for that, Nick. How do people find out more about you individually? And then how do they find out more about 7P Overland? Yeah, the 7P Overland is quite easy. The, the 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 website is at 7POverland.com. Myself, you know, my bio's in there as, as well as the the other senior guys in the team. Their bios are there. Um, and like every other website, it seems it's it's always a little bit behind where we actually needed to be. But sure. um, that's a that's a good place to start. I encourage people to sign up for our, our extremely low volume mailing list. Maybe yeah. one or two emails a year. But that's where we announce the stuff that's going on the calendar. We announce the training. We announce the um, the travel trips that we're doing. Sure. So Check that that sort of place. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nick, for being on the podcast. We appreciate you very much. And we look forward to seeing you out in the field. And I need to come and take some of your classes. Absolutely. I'm excited to do that. Anytime. Come along. And thanks you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Of course. And thank pleasure. you all for listening. And we will talk to you next time. <laughs>